Good morning, church. It's a wonderful time to be here in God's presence. And what a privilege it is to be able to gather and start our week praising God, thanking God, through song, through prayer, and through his holy word. I invite you to turn to Job in the Old Testament, chapter 31. That'll be our text this morning. Don't feel too daunted. We can get through this. I know we can. Job 31, beginning with verse 1. And we read, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze on a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my, inherit, my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the works of, workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I've lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime, that would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, and it would burn to the root of all my increase. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused, my eyes, caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as with a father. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he has not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of the calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because of my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me, 
so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for these ancient words. May they speak to us. May they change us. May they be uh, enlightened by the light of your gospel and by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may be conformed more into your image today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we begin today's lesson from what is probably the most ancient text in our Bible, it may be good to remind ourselves that the entire Bible is one story, a meta-narrative with God as its author. Though neatly divided into two testaments, it remains one story, the revelation of God's purpose to redeem a people to himself. As Augustine said, the Old Testament is in the new concealed. The new, the new Testament is in the old concealed. The Old Testament is in the new revealed. Graham Goldsworthy said it this way. He said, the basic idea woven through the whole of scripture is that of the kingdom of God. And that this kingdom can best be described as God's people in God's place under God's rule and authority. But perhaps the best illustration tying the Old and New Testaments together is an analogy made by Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield. And he said it this way. He said, when we enter into an Old Testament text, it's like walking into a dimly lit room. And the room is very well appointed. It has beautiful tapestries, beautiful artwork, sculptures, a wonderful cornice running around the ceiling, but the room is dimly lit. The New Testament comes in and flicks on the lights so that all of a sudden you can appreciate everything in the room. Now remember, nothing has been added to the room except for light. So as the light of the New Testament illuminates what is in the old, we see that the entirety of scripture points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. From the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. So before we seek to draw out the gospel as found in Job's final speech as he's crying out for vindication, let's get some background. We learn from chapter 1 that Job is a patriarch from the land of Uz, east of the Jordan. Now we can fairly conclude that Job lived between the time of Abraham and Moses. And we draw this conclusion based on several indications in the text. First, there's no mention in the book of the name or nation of Israel. Second, in Job's day, there was no centralized sacrificial system based within the nation of Israel, located at either the tabernacle or the temple, serviced by priests descended from Aaron. 
Rather, we see the same practices that we see in Genesis, where the patriarch, as head of his family, acted as priest by offering sacrifices and praying for his household. And like the patriarchs, Job could pray for people other than his household. We see that at the end of the book, when the Lord tells him to offer sacrifice for his three friends who are in error. Third, Job's lifespan must have been around 200 years. He lived long enough to marry and raise a family of adult children who in turn all married and then they were killed. Then he lived another 140 years. So as such, Job's lifespan is longer than that of Moses and the generations after him and is more in keeping with those of the patriarchs closer to Abraham's day. And we also know about Job that he was a worshiper of God, Elohim. Job 1.1 says that he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And if this isn't enough, the Lord himself testifies to Job's integrity. In Job 1.8, it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So then, how would this patriarch from the ancient Near East acquire a saving knowledge of the Redeemer yet to come? Simple answer, oral tradition. In Job 23:12, it says, I have treasured the words of his mouth. Now, Job obviously could not read the words because Moses hadn't penned them yet. But through oral tradition, he would have known about the events that would later be recorded in Genesis 1 through chapter 11. And the promised seed of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. He would have learned what right worship looked like and what sacrifice looked like through the lens of the story of Cain and Abel. He would have known about another righteous and blameless man named Noah and how God had saved him and his family. He may have even heard how God stayed Abraham's hand because he, the Lord, would provide the sacrifice. Job had inherited a knowledge of the sacrificial system as it was known before Moses. And so he knew about the concept of a substitute who would die in our place to pay for our sin, though this understanding may have been limited. Now, we all know the events which follow the scene in chapter 1 of Job where after the divine courtroom, Satan is allowed to alleviate Job of his descendants, his property, and eventually his health striking him with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And there he is, in agony, scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery while sitting in an ash heap. Then begins the dialogue between Job's three friends and Job, searching for an answer to the big question, why? Why would God allow this if Job was truly righteous and blameless? Now, the friends are convinced that Job is guilty of sin and that God is dealing out retribution. Job, on the other hand, is convinced of his innocence, and the argument reaches its climax with Job's final speech in which he maintains that he is righteous before God. That's the speech we just read. In the end, Job is declared to be right before God. And in chapter 31, we see that Job possessed a righteousness 
that can only be obtained through union with Christ. This morning we'll walk through the righteousness of Job and shine the light of the gospel as it was shown to us in our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, a righteousness not to be obtained by doing, but by abiding in Christ. There are four points we're going to look at concerning Job's righteousness. Number one, Job's righteousness was from the heart. Look back at verses one and two. There Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? For Job, it was not enough to avoid adultery. He would not even look on a woman lustfully. Sound familiar? Let's turn quickly, if you would, to Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30, where our Lord says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now here in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus upping the ante on what it means to commit adultery. It's more than a physical issue. It is a matter of the heart. Job has made a covenant between his eyes and his heart. He knows that sin lies in the inward intentions of the heart and not just in the outward act. Notice Job's wording in verse 7. Here's what he says. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes. How often is that played out in scripture? Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she took of it and ate. Eve's heart went after her eyes. 2 Samuel 11.2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. David's heart went after his eyes. Brothers and sisters, let's learn from Job and these other examples from scripture not to let our hearts go after our eyes. Most practically, we need to control what we set before our eyes. We live in a time when uncountable pornographic images are just a click away. Have each of us made a covenant with our eyes not to be lured in by worldly lusts? Can we say with the psalmist, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Are we being diligent to protect our children and young adults from the snares set out by Satan? If you're a parent, perhaps you remember when you had toddlers, or if you're a young person here, perhaps your folks have sang this to you, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. 
For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Now, this little ditty that we sing to our toddlers is actually quite theologically sound. Let's look at verse 4 of our text. What motivates Job to make a covenant with his eyes? He says, does not he see my ways and number all my steps? Job knew that God sees what he sees. Job knew that Elohim is always there beside him, and yet he can still say in verse 6, let God know my integrity. Job's obedience to God was motivated by a constant assurance that God was always there beside him, and Job did not want to endanger his portion from God above. A few weeks ago, we heard from Pastor Adam as he preached on 1 John 3, 9, where it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Job's righteousness was from the heart because his heart was owned by God. Job had learned the secret of abiding in him. Now, does that mean that Job never sinned? Obviously not. For in verse 33, he says that he did not conceal his iniquity as others do. And in some translations, it says, I did not conceal my iniquity as Adam did, which tells us a couple of things. One, that he knew the story of the garden. And secondly, that when Job did stumble and sin, he did not run from God. Because his relationship was right, he would run to God. And what it also means is that Job, and for all of us abiding in Christ, we will hate sin. We'll not make a practice or a habit of sinning. Job's righteousness was from the heart. Number two, Job's righteousness produced generosity. Look at verses 13 through 15 in our text. It says, If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him, and did not, and did not one fashion us in the womb? Now, we learn in the opening chapter of the book of Job that this guy was loaded, a very wealthy man. But here we see that he was a humble man before God who looked at the people around him with fairness and equity. Job has gone beyond the customs of his time and has treated his servants as having rights, like fellow human beings. Contemporary society in Job's days could have treated these people as possessions. But Job viewed others as imagio dei, made in the image of God. Did not he who made me in the womb make him? Did not one fashion us in the womb? Job sees that whatever a person's station in life is, he or she is fearfully and wonderfully made. And notice that here we are in the ancient patriarchal Near East, and we see Job treating his manservant and his maidservant equitably. 
Before Christ walked the earth, long before, long before Christ met the Samaritan woman at the well, long before he forgave the woman weeping at his feet, long before our Lord healed the woman who hemorrhaged for 12 years, or healed the crippled woman and made her straight, here we have Job treating his manservants and his maidservants not only equal to each other, but equal to him. Christians, do you ever find yourself looking down on other people as being less than? Is your first reaction to judge or to help? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? Now let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. If we travel back to, uh, or travel ahead to Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42, our Lord says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So now if we go back to our text and look at verses 16 through 23, we see that Job was generous to those around him, specifically the poor, the widow, and the orphan. And he mentions, you know, who has not eaten of his meat? Who's, who has not had his wool put on him when he's been cold? The sojourner has not slept in the street, but he opens his doors to him. So long before Christ taught his disciples, Job is living out James 1.27, where it says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Job is living up to the law before the letter of the law was written. And though he wasn't perfect, he wasn't sinless, he's righteous before God because by faith he is abiding in God and this faith produces generosity. Mike Birkin has often said that the gospel restores our vertical relationship with God, and it does. That relationship is broken and the gospel restores it, but it doesn't stop there. It also fixes our horizontal relationships with fellow humans. And so here's Job bringing grace and generosity to others by blessing them with what God has given to him. But our Lord tells us that it's not enough to love and bless those who we deem needy. Back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Jesus continues, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you, be, you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now here he goes again, Jesus, upping the ante. Now I have to love my enemies. And in Job, in our text, verses 29 through 30, says, If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, 
or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. So brothers and sisters, does your love for God produce not only generosity for those whom you love or those who you see who are in need, but do you have an empathy for the unlovable and even those who may hate you? This is what abiding in Christ looks like. So Job's righteousness was from the heart and his faith produced generosity to those around him. Thirdly, Job's righteousness treasured God, not gold. In verses 24 to 28 of our text, it says, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. As we said earlier, Job had been, before Satan was allowed to take it away, he had been a very wealthy man. But here we see that his trust, his confidence, was not in his possessions, but in being possessed by God. Again, we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, but wait a minute. Didn't we just say that Job did have a lot of stuff at one time? Yes, we did. But he did not put his trust in his wealth. He says that by doing so, he would have been false to God above. The New American Standard says, for I would have denied God above. So notice how quickly the love of money can move us into idolatry. In Job's day, this could look like worshiping the sun or the moon or even oneself, all of which he mentions. I mean, after all, the wealthy could just say, I'm not dependent on God. I can do it all myself, I'm totally self-sufficient. Oh, really? Job knew better. In Job 12.10, he states, talking about God, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind, or as Paul puts it, in him we live and move and have our being. So although he had been extremely rich, Job claims that his wealth never became an idol in the place of God. So, but maybe you're not well off. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum, uh, living week to week. Surely you're not in danger of idolatry. Oh, really? Here the temptation is to covet, to covet what others have that you do not. Colossians 3, 1 through 5 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So whether you have the wealth of Job or you're like the poor widow putting two coppers in the treasury box, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Treasure God, not gold. Which brings us to our fourth and final point. Job's righteousness resulted in a clean conscience. His righteousness resulted in a clean conscience. Look at verses 35 to 37. He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Now, Job's friends have gone three rounds trying to persuade him that his suffering is God's judgment for obvious sin. Here in this chapter, we see that Job is maintaining that he is right with God, not because he never sins, but because by faith he abides in him. And here at the end, he clearly wants to see the indictment against him. His confidence is so sure that if such an indictment is made, he would wear it like a crown. So the question is, where does Job obtain such a confidence before God? The answer is from God himself. In Job 19, verses 25 to 26, we read, and this is Job speaking, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. God had blessed Job with the promise of redemption and the hope of resurrection. Long before the incarnation of Jesus Christ and before the first word of Genesis was penned by Moses, the truth of the gospel was shown to Job. His claim to his righteousness and integrity were not a claim to self-righteousness, but a righteousness awarded to him by grace and established by the promise of God. If Elohim was not true to his word, then there would be no salvation for Job and all would be lost. But he knew that God is true, though every man be found a liar. Job could sleep at night with a clean conscience that rested not on his works, but on God's promise. So the question is, how can you and I have this same confidence? By looking with faith, not only at the promises made by God, but at the promises kept by God through the incarnation of the person of Jesus Christ. Through his perfect sinless life, his death on a cross to atone for our sins, and his resurrection, we can have a clean conscience between, before a holy God. As Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, 
let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Job is given to us as a type of a righteous, suffering servant. But God only allowed Satan to go so far. As Satan is told by God, he is in your hand, only spare his life. But to Christ, the anti-type, Satan is allowed to go all out as he is beaten, scourged, hung on a cross to die to make payment for our sins. As Job struggles to know why, God answers him out of the whirlwind. As Christ hangs on the cross, he asks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is no reply. Friend, if you're here today and you are not experiencing a clean conscience that can only come through knowing that Jesus Christ has redeemed you through his life, death, and resurrection, then I beg that you would not take another breath until you have cast your hope and faith in him. And if you are a believer but are wrestling with what Satan is throwing at you, then I invite you to return to the promise made to Job and fulfilled in Christ and to know that your Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand on the earth. So a final exhortation comes to us from the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Hear how Jesus winds up his sermon. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Job lived the life of a man who had built his house on the rock. His hope was in a redeemer yet to come. How much more then are we blessed by living on this side of the cross and being brought into God's meta-narrative through the union with Christ? And like Job, we long for the final chapter of God's grand story of redemption when, at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after our skin has been thus destroyed, yet in our flesh we shall see God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel lesson from your ancient scripture. Lord, help us to display Christ's righteousness in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. Renew our minds and our hearts that we may have dominion over our eyes, our words, and our actions. Lord, teach us to be generous and kind to those we encounter daily. May we treasure you above all that the world has to offer. And may we rest assured of our place in your kingdom, since we know that it has been secured by the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.